So we're talking today a little bit about the future um, and maybe the idea of destiny or or even prophecy and fortune. So I thought it would be fun to look at a couple um, fortune cookies before we get started. Anyone like me, and although you put exactly zero stock in fortune cookies, it still feels good when you get a good one. You guys do that? Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anybody play the in-bed game? Just raise your hand. Don't sit. I just want to know who my people are. We're not going to explain it. I just, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know. We know. Um, some fortune cookies uh, are deep, of course. To truly find yourself, you should play hide-and-seek alone. Yeah. Um, some think they're deep, but they're not. If you can't, uh, you can't have everything, where would you put it all? Sounds deep, but if you have everything, there's plenty of places to put it. Um, some are actually a little helpful. The early bird gets the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese. See, that's I can live by that. That's my that's advice I can use. Speaking of useful, I got uh, this one, um, and I would take this one as a sign from God. Pass the bill to the person on your left. <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually, when I read that one, considered like printing my own and just sticking it in my wallet so that anytime I'm eating Chinese with friends, I could just, hey, look what I got. Yeah. Uh, Some are just goofy, like ignore previous cookie. (laughs) I actually thought about printing this one. So if anybody used the other one on me, I could have a trump card to put over the top of it. And some are just downright hilarious. Help, I'm being held prisoner in a Chinese bakery. (laughs) Oh, man. I hope that's real. Not the prisoner part. The I hope it's a real fortune cookie. Sheesh. Uh, so with Lent coming up, um, and after we used January as this year's identity series, um, we have kind of two weeks to fill before Ash Wednesday when we'll kick into our Lent series, which isn't enough time for a full series. So I thought I would just share this week and next week um, a couple things that uh, I've just had on my heart kind of from my own personal studies lately. So um, this week and next week will be just independent sermons that don't really connect to any series, um, which is really weird for me. I don't know if you've noticed, but when I write a series, I try to hold a fairly constant and consistent theme throughout, and I do a lot of reviewing to kind of keep the whole thing tied together, which is basically because I write one really, really long sermon that's too long to preach, and then I have to break it up into four parts um, so when I say that I'm preaching um, a single sermon all by itself, what that really means is I'm cramming a whole series into today, but the Chiefs don't play till 5.30, so I thought, no, kidding. Um, I've obviously spent a lot of time over the past year thinking about the future. I think we all have. Um, we've gotten used to phrases like back to normal and the new normal. Um, I think we've seen more change, more just fundamental change this year than maybe I have in my lifetime um, from little things like how to use Zoom. You know, now I don't think very many of us had any clue how to use Zoom, and now we do it as easy as we make a phone call um, to more fundamental changes like never leaving the house without making sure you have a mask, like we're all Batman or something, um, or how to socially distance at Quick Trip like we all forgot deodorant. Um, but more than that, uh, I, more than just the change, I feel like um, this past year has been a war of deep agendas. Um, has anyone ever felt that? Like, we're familiar with different ideologies. Like, there's different opinions on the way things should happen, and, and most of our debate happens in the distance between those ideologies, and, and we're used to that. But this year has felt deeper than that. 
it's felt like there are these deep kind of tidal forces that work underneath everything that's happening. I mean, be honest. How many of you have heard the word conspiracy theory more this year than you probably have in your entire lifetime? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's how, how can that word be so common now that we talk about conspiracy theories? So I thought what we do today is just go through every conspiracy theory one by one. And just, no, we're not doing that. Um, we're not doing that. We all know they're all real or they wouldn't be on the Internet. So um, <laughs> I'm not actually interested in conspiracy theories, but I am interested in this idea of this deep, powerful moving of things from underneath almost like we're on an unseen track. And more importantly, what our job is when we recognize these things. For instance, um, many people look at the stuff that's happening today and they wonder, are we in the end times? Um, are, we, are the things that are happening an indicator that we're entering a time of tribulation and maybe the time when Jesus comes back soon? That's a great question. Others wonder if it's just a more ordinary season of judgment. Our country has made some decisions and passed some laws that are contrary to biblical values. And there's kind of a plethora of scriptures to choose from that indicate when a country that is committed to biblical values goes down that path, judgment follows. The book of judgments is long. Book of Judges is this long story of Israel going down a similar path. And God would, when they would fall away from God, he would fling the gates open and let the enemies in and he'd pour out judgment. And then when they would turn back to God, he frees them and sends a deliverer, um, and they would get it right for a season, and then they would slip back into that pattern again. So maybe America's on a similar path. Another great question. And just so you know, I do not have any answers to any of those questions. But I do believe that just because there's no clear answers, that doesn't mean we can't look to the Scripture at how we're supposed to live in the midst of these kinds of questions. So what I thought we would do today is look at a story from Second Kings. Um, we're on top. Uh, is is the story of some kings, some normal stories from kings, but underneath is this huge movement of God that is completely unstoppable, and how different kings, three different kings, responded to that pressure very differently. And hopefully, we can learn something about how we can live. Today, So we'll be reading from 2 Kings chapter 20, if you like following in your own Bible. And we're going to be working through three full chapters, three different chapters. So I'm only going to read little portions of each um, so that you don't have to stand up here and listen to me read all day. But I highly recommend you read the rest of these, that you go home and read all three chapters um, to catch any missing details. It reads like this. About that time, Hezekiah became deathly ill. Hezekiah was a king of Israel. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him. He gave the king this message. This is what the Lord says. Set your affairs in order, for you are going to die. You will not recover from this illness. When Hezekiah heard this, he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, O Lord, how I, was, have, how I have always been faithful to you and have served you single-mindedly, always doing what pleases you. Then he broke down and wept bitterly. But before Isaiah had left the middle courtyard, this message came to him from the Lord. Go back to Hezekiah, the leader of my people. Tell him, this is what the Lord, the God of your ancestors, David, says. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will heal you. And in three days from now, you will get out of bed and go to the temple of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life, and I will rescue you and this city from the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my own honor. And for the sake of my servant David, 
Then Isaiah said, make an ointment of figs. So Hezekiah's servant spread the ointment over the boil and Hezekiah recovered. This is the word of the Lord. So this is a really weird scripture for me. I I probably struggle with this passage more than any other in scripture because Hezekiah receives this prophecy that he's going to die. And the prophet of God comes and delivers this prophecy. God tells Isaiah to tell Hezekiah, your time is up. It gives a solid prophecy. But Hezekiah prays and seems to convince God that he needs more time, which is kind of awesome because it's this amazing evidence that prayer can actually change things. Um, but I also wonder what that was like for Isaiah. Can you imagine being the prophet of God and God gives you a message, you know, and you go and say, this is what's going to happen. And before you can even make it out, God says, go back and change your prophecy. You, uh, I mean, it's never fun to deliver bad news anyway. Like, you hate, who would want to go say, oh, by the way, God told me to tell you you're going to die. Like, weird, weird to imagine. Um, but that's kind of the prophet's shtick. You know, that's kind of what they do. So what do you do? You know, you go and you deliver, you're going to die. Except before you can even make it off palace grounds, God stops you and says, new message, go back and nullify the old message. Um, which doesn't exactly help your, like, prophet of God credibility rating, you know. If there's an app for that, uh, you know, you lost a star there um, because you just undid one of your prophecies. But Isaiah faithfully delivers the new message that Hezekiah is going to have another 15 years, which is amazing news for Hezekiah. Um, so after asking, you know, kind of for a sign of confirmation, Hezekiah goes back to his life as normal. Um, and shortly after recovering, the prince of Babylon which is this gigantic empire that's kind of gobbling up nation after nation after nation, sends a gift congratulating Hezekiah on his recovery. And the gift was delivered by a group of envoys. And Hezekiah is so excited to be alive um, that he was, and he was probably a little leery of the size of Babylon, you know, how kind of big and impressive they are. He gives the envoys a tour of Israel, just shows them everything, takes them in the temple and shows them all the riches of the Lord and shows them inside the palace and just kind of gives them a a full view of the wealth of Israel. Um, And immediately after this kind of visit, when the envoys leave, God taps Isaiah on the shoulder again and says, go back and talk to Hezekiah. And Isaiah goes and says this. He says, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, listen to this message. Oh, so he goes to Hezekiah. And he goes, what did you show him? And he was like, I showed him everything. I let him have free reign. I showed him everything we have. And this is what Isaiah says. Isaiah says to Hezekiah, listen to the message of the Lord. The time is coming when everything in your palace, all your treasures stored up by your ancestors until now will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your very own sons will be taken away into exile. They will become eunuchs who will serve in the palace of Babylon's king. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, this message has given me uh, this message that was given me from the Lord is good for the king was thinking at least there will be peace and security during my lifetime. So Hezekiah lives out his 15 years and his son Manasseh, his extra 15 years, his son Manasseh takes the throne. And here's how the next chapter starts. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. His mother was Hephzibah. So if anybody of you are thinking, looking for a cute baby girl named Hepsiba is still um, an option, um, just saying, beautiful Hepsiba. So Manasseh's king, and he's an awful king. Hezekiah's son is a horrible king. In fact, the, the, the Bible says that he was, the, he was worse than the pagans who lived in the land before God gave it to Israel. 
Um, he's so bad that God finally responds very harshly. This is what God says about Manasseh. Then the Lord said through his servants, the prophets, King Manasseh of Judah has done many detestable things. He's even more wicked than the Amorites who lived in the land before Israel. He has caused the people of Judah to sin with their, with his idols. So this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I will bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of those who hear about it will tingle with horror. And this actually goes on for quite some time, but it, it gets depressing after that. That's the good part, actually. Um, so here's why Hezekiah's healing bothers me so much. Here, here's what here's the tension. Look how old Manasseh was when he became king. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned Jews in 55 years. Do you may remember how much extra time Hezekiah got? 15 years. So, so uh, Manasseh, arguably the worst king in Israel's history, the king that literally called down the judgment of God, is born in Hezekiah's extra time. And uh, and not only that, but it was during that extra time that Hezekiah gives the, the tour to the Babylonian envoys that kind of baited the hook for them to come down and conquer Israel. So Hezekiah, who up to this point has been a great king, but, uh, you know, maybe one of the best kings since David. Um, and he begs for more time and God gives it. And with that extra time, he kind of really blows it. Um, he attracts the attention of Babylon and gives birth to the worst king who actually offends God so badly that God sends judgment. So that's the, there's already some major tension in the story. Like was God answering Hezekiah's prayer a good thing or a bad thing? It's, it's, it's really hard to know. But the thing that I really want to establish at this point is, is, the, is the fact that twice now, um, both to Hezekiah after he showed all the riches of the envoys where God comes in and goes, hey, bad things are coming. And now under Manasseh, where God really explains how bad it's going to be, twice now God has, has described this path of judgment that is coming. It's like they're on a roller coaster now, and there's only one direction to go. From this point forward, Israel has a bad future. So I've, I've titled this message, What You Do With a Bad Future. What do you do when, when the road ahead of you is unmistakably rough. Now, I'd like to look at the answer to this question from three perspectives. The perspective of Hezekiah, the perspective of Amon, who is Manasseh's son, and the perspective of Josiah, the king that came after Ammon. And we're actually going to read Hezekiah's response. We already read Hezekiah's response. Um, it happened after he got the bad prophecy. It says, Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, This message you have given me from the Lord is good. At least there will be peace and security during my lifetime. Maybe my least favorite line in the entire Bible. Hezekiah, knowing the judgment is coming, basically says, oh, well, at least it's not my problem. Wow. I'd love to pretend like Hezekiah is like this unbelievable monster, but I think our world is full of people who think about their comfort first, who think about at least none of that is going to touch me. In fact, I would argue one of the biggest problems we face, definitely in our country, it may be the biggest problem, is short-sightedness. We live in the words of, of, of Hezekiah, whatever gives me peace in my life, whatever's the best for me, that's what I'll vote for. 
We no longer vote the big picture. We now, we now make choices that as long as it's okay in my lifetime, as long as I can live with some comfort, then, uh, then it's good news to me. The second perspective comes from Amon, who is the son of Hezekiah. And he took over as king when, he was, when his father died. And his really short story reads like this. Amon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem two years. His mother was Meshulameth, another girl name if you're interested, um, daughter of Heraz from Jatba. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as his father Manasseh had done. He followed the example of his father, worshiping all the same idols that his father had worshipped. So Hezekiah responded to this terrible trajectory that the nation is now on with selfishness. And Amon responds with laziness. Amon just keeps on doing what his dad did. He changes nothing. Manasseh was king for 55 years, which is long enough for this wickedness to become normal, become the, just the way things were. And Amon just goes along with that status quo, worshipped all the same things, did all the same things. This is the way it's been. What can I do? Nothing ever changes. Just keep scrolling down until I find a picture of somebody's grandkid. Like, no reason to get upset. So Hezekiah is selfish. Amon is lazy. But Amon is assassinated, and his son Josiah becomes king at the ripe old age of eight. And, uh, and in his tenth year of reign, when he's 18, Josiah decides to clean up the temple, which had fallen into some neglect. Nobody had been nobody had spent any much time there. So he decides to take the temple tax that had been, that had still been collected to restore the temple. And while they're working on it, they find the scrolls of Torah. Uh, we have a tendency to think in the Old Testament, like everybody just walked around with an Old Testament Bible and everybody knew Torah and everybody read Torah. Uh, this story seems to tell us otherwise. They find the Torah in the temple and nobody had a clue what it was. It was new to everybody. And so they bring it out and they say, well, hey, we found this book. Um, and, uh, because, you know, they didn't have printing presses. It was not like everybody had their own. If the temple's not being used, then nobody's reading Torah. And so they read, they read it. And, uh, and Josiah's workers um, bring it to him, and when they read it, he is shocked. Josiah had no clue what the Lord expected of Israel. He realizes that his nation is in big trouble. They're not doing what is right. And it reads like this. Helkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the court secretary, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. Then Helkiah gave the scroll to Shaphan, and he read it. Shaphan went to the king and reported, your officials have turned over the money collected at the temple, uh, at the temple of the Lord, to the workers and the supervisors of the temple. Shaphan also told the king, Helkiah the priest has given me a scroll. So Shaphan read it to the king. When the king heard it, he, when he heard what was written in the book of the law, he tore his clothes with despair. Then he gave these orders to Helkiah the priest. Amon, son of Shaphan, uh, Akbor, son of Micaiah. Uh, in the court secretary, and Isaiah, the king's personal advisor, go to the temple and speak to the Lord for me and for the people of all of Judah. Inquire about the words written in the scroll that, that has been found. For the Lord's great anger is burning against us because our ancestors have not obeyed the words of this scroll. We have not been doing everything it says we must do. So Josiah sends his messengers back to the temple and asks uh, his prophetess um, named Huldah, Another great girl name. It's a full sermon full of them today. I hope someone's writing these down. Um, what in the world is happening 
Uh, and the answer he gets is not great. So he sends back, what's going on? Like, I read the scroll. Um, seek the Lord for us and find out what's happening. And here's what Huldah says. She said to them, the Lord, the God of Israel has spoken. Go back and tell the man who sent you, which is the king. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on this city and its people. All the words written in the scroll that the king of Judah has read will come true. For my people have abandoned me and offered sacrifice to pagan gods. And I am very angry with them for everything they have done. My anger will burn against this place and it will not be quenched. This is the message Josiah gets when he finds the words of the Lord. So, not great news um, for the 18-year-old king to receive. Uh, but it holds in line with the prophecy that was given to Hezekiah 82 years ago. So it would be like something that America did in 1939, creating an irreversible movement today that we couldn't get out of. Like this is going to happen. But there is an upside for the great-grandson of Hezekiah. Because the Holda also adds this, But go to the king of Judah, who sent you to seek the Lord, and tell him, This is what the Lord, God of Israel, says concerning the message you have just heard. You were sorry and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I said against this city and its people and this land, that this land would be cursed and become desolate. You tore your clothes in despair and you wept before me in repentance. And I have indeed heard you, says the Lord. So I will not send the promised disaster until you have died and, and been buried in peace. You will not see the disaster I'm going to bring on this city. So they took her message back to the king. So, here's an 18-year-old young man. He's king, so he can have anything he wants. He can sit around and play Xbox all day if he wants. He can, he can do whatever. He's the king. He's been promised peace in his lifetime. Not only that, but he's also been promised that he's not going to make a difference. He is not going to change the trajectory that this nation is now on. So not only is he king, he can do what he wants. He knows that God is going to give him at least his lifetime of peace and even if he decides to do something, he's not going to make a difference. Judah's on a trajectory that he cannot change. What's interesting is um, he doesn't do what we would think he would do. We know what Hezekiah would have done with this news. He would have breathed a deep sigh of relief, knowing at least he's in the clear. At least I'm good. He was safe. Israel might go to hell in a handbasket, but I'm going to be saved. We know what Amon would have done. Nothing. It would have been too much work. I'll just go along to get along. Josiah takes a different course. While coasting along on this sinking ship, Josiah decides to lead a revival. This 18-year-old king spends his entire reign chasing passionately after God, even though he knows it's not going to save his nation. In fact, he makes such an impression that the Bible says this about him. Never before had there been a king like Josiah who turned to the Lord with all of his heart and soul and strength, obeying all the laws of Moses. And there has never been a king like him since. That would be awesome. Would that not be awesome to be like in the Bible as God is like this dude got it? I'm absolutely enamored with this often overlooked hero of Scripture. Um, and it's... Uh, it's why I often pray that our kids would lead us in revival. This is an 18-year-old kid leading a revival. Um, 
And in case it's not obvious, I'm recommending um, Josiah's path over Hezekiah's and Amon's. Um, and Josiah's revival comes in three parts. And I think this is where we can um, learn the most this morning. And I want to pull apart this just a little bit. First, Josiah returns to the covenant. Then the king summoned all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the temple of the Lord with all the people of Judah and Jerusalem, along with the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. There the king read with, uh, read to them the entire book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. The Lord took the, his place of authority beside the pillar and renewed the covenant in the Lord's presence. He pledged to obey the Lord by keeping all of his laws and commands and decrees with all of his heart and soul. In this way, he confirmed all the terms of the covenant that were written in the scroll, and all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. So Josiah returns to the covenant. Um, and the second thing he does is he eliminates idolatry. It says, Then the king instructed Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priest of the second rank, and the temple gatekeeper to remove from the Lord's temple all the articles that were used in worshiping Baal and Asherah and all the powers of heaven. And the king uh, had all these things burned outside Jerusalem on the terraces of the Kidron Valley, and he buried the ashes away to Bethel. Um, this actually goes on for a long time in great detail of all the the, the idolatry that, that Josiah rooted out. Um, it's very, very detailed, but this is just a small set, uh, sampling. Suffice it to say, Josiah ruthlessly rooted out idolatry in Israel. And finally, after returning to the covenant and, and putting an end to idolatry, Josiah returns his people to their rhythms, to their liturgies. Um, it says, King Josiah then issued these orders to all the people. You must celebrate the Passover of the Lord your God as required in the book of the covenant. There had been no Passover celebrations like that since the time of the, ju the judges ruled in Israel, nor throughout all the years of the kings of Israel and Judah. So in the king's lifetime, the time of Judah is all that kind of was left of Israel. The other part of Israel was taken captive into Assyria. Um, uh, it, it goes from this kind of, the Judah where he's ruling goes from this kind of debase um, nation uh, it's so kind of rotten that God had vowed this terrible wrath on them um, to a nation that celebrated the Lord's Passover in a way that had maybe never been done. So he he uh, returns to the covenant and all the people commit to the covenant together. He roots out idolatry in the nation, gets rid of everything that's holding an allegiance higher than God's, and he returns them to their festivals and rhythms uh, that had been established in the law. So how do we respond to this? So I know I've read a lot of scripture and covered a lot of ground. Um, basically, it's actually four full chapters uh, if you want to go home and read it. But I, I think this passage today um, has a lot to say for us. I have no idea if we're in the end times. Um, there are certainly some things that, uh, that look like indicators, but at the same time, every single generation of Christianity going back to the first century has thought they were in the end times. And so it's really hard to feel like we're unique um, in that. I have no idea if America is on a path of judgment. I, I can't know that. I, I can come up with a hundred reasons why we might be, 
But I also know that God was willing to spare Sodom and Gomorrah if he could find five righteous people. So I can find a lot of reason why America wouldn't be. I don't know if the currents pulling our nation at its bedrock right now are irreversible. Prayer and repentance can I don't know. I don't know the answer to any of those questions. But I do know for us, for God's people, it doesn't really matter. If Josiah teaches us anything, he teaches us that if Jesus is coming back next week, we faithfully lead a revival until he gets there. If our nation is on a path of destruction that cannot be deterred, we faithfully lead a revival until it gets here. If everything starts getting back to normal tomorrow and we find out all this goes away and everything just keeps pulling, we still faithfully lead revival until the end. We do not serve God for an outcome. We serve God faithfully as we are the people of God, and that's what we do, period. And I think we do it the same way Josiah did. We return to the covenant. Josiah found the Torah, and he gathered the people, and he read it, and, and everyone made this commitment to reestablish the covenant with the people. And I'm really glad that I live in the New Testament because I had trouble reading these passages this week. I can't imagine having to stand up here and read the whole covenant to you guys. We would have to read all the way to the football game. But uh, but Jesus summed up the covenant for us, the entire Torah. He said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That's the covenant. That's the whole law. That's the Torah. See how fast I did that? Just boom. Love God, love people. I love being New Testament. But we need to get back to that. We need to recommit ourselves to the, to the covenant of loving God and loving people. Next week we're actually going to look at love, exactly what it means. It's kind of like a Valentine bonus sermon. But I can't say enough how much we need to return to the Torah. Love God, love people. We have to commit our lives to that. When the Israelites got away from the covenant, God got angry. Jesus sums up that covenant saying, love God, love people. And right now there are a ton of people to hate. There are more than enough enemies to go around. There are more than enough idiots on Facebook to debate with 24-7. We cannot, though, abandon the covenant. We are called to be a certain kind of people. And we have to hold to that. Love God. Love people. Period. Secondly, we have to get rid of idolatry. And I may get crucified in today's political climate for saying this, but politics have become a god in America. If you have any allegiance that pulls more of your attention and more of your affection and more of your passion than Jesus does, then that's a god. And Josiah would come knocking on your door. Money can be a God. The cult of self and personal independence and autonomy can be a God. Safety and protection can be a God. We have to search deep like Josiah did. Josiah scoured the countryside looking for idolatry. And we have to do the exact same thing to the landscape of our hearts. What holds more allegiance in my heart than Jesus? Whatever it is, it's got to go. Be brutal. Allow no other gods. And finally, we get back to the basics. We go back to the rhythms. For Josiah, this meant getting back to an 800-year-old celebration, back to an annual rhythm, familiar words that Israel had said over and over and over again. 
When we were in Egypt, our God delivered us with a strong arm. He went back to the Passover celebration. He went back to the the good old days. For us, this is church on Sundays. This is Bible readings. This is regular prayer times. This is old school. Small group Bible studies, mealtime prayers. This is reading Bible stories to your kids before bed. These are all the things that shape us as the people of God. It's not rocket science. There's no newfangled gimmicks. The word revival means bring back to life, to revive, to relive. I have no idea what's in store for our world and certainly not for our nation. All I know is there's an awful lot of stuff changing. A lot of it doesn't look good and I'm hearing more talk about end times, more talk about judgment and more talk about conspiracy theory and all these things. And I'm convinced that it can't all be wrong. But I do know this. It doesn't change anything for us. We advance the kingdom of God either way. We lead revival either way. If America's brightest days are ahead, we meet those days by loving God and loving people, by making sure we only have one God, and by doing what the people of God do. And if the ship's going down, we face it with the same plan. The same plan. We could be like Hezekiah and and make it as comfortable for ourselves as we can while we can. We can live like Amon and just throw in the towel and join the party. Or we can lead like Josiah. Revival. I really hope we choose the latter. So the way that I would love to respond to this message is to ignore the temptation to guess the future. And instead, just choose a life of faithfulness. Love God. Love people. Focus your allegiance on Jesus and the people of God like never before. And bring back the old rhythms that you've used to connect to God in the past. Bring those back. And a week and a half, Lent begins. I'd love it if we would use that entire 46 days to, uh, of focused contemplation to, to set some rhythms and some habits back in your life to revive you and remind you of who we are. So I invite you for for this Lenten season. And if you need ideas, set a regular Bible reading time. Be like rigid and old school about it. Have a morning devotional. Set a prayer time. Commit to come to church every week. Read to your kids before bed. Like all those things that the people of God have done forever and ever and ever. Let's Bring those back into style for this season. When, when Josiah led a revival, he did it by going backwards. Sometimes we're so focused on the future, we think, you know, God is constantly doing a new thing. Sometimes the new thing is the old thing. Sometimes the new thing is, is you've walked away from these rhythms I gave you. You've walked away from these, these, these patterns and cycles that, that help you keep your life on track. Sometimes the new thing is to go back to those old things. Amen? Let's go to the table.